0: Good to be together, and it's good to be in the presence of God with one another. Uh, this morning, I'd like to ask a few questions. If that's all right, I like asking questions. It's what I do all day, every day, as part of my uh, my day job, is to ask people lots of questions. And um, for those of you that are visitors, that may not know, we are in the middle of a series, or just at the beginning of a series, really, called the Cross and the Crown which is that we wanted to spend time taking in the cross of Christ, surveying the cross of Christ. And that's something that you can't do with a quick glance. It's something that has to be done again and again. And each time we see something new in the cross. And I hope that for all of us, we're experiencing that. But because the cross is such an arresting event, it's something that causes us to stop and look. And in some ways it causes us to ask a question, and that is who we think God is. One of the things that we've said time and again recently is that what happened on the cross really reveals something of God's character to us. We see all of God's attributes coming together in this one kind of momentous event. I think it was Richard that said a couple of weeks ago that it's a few days in history that impacted the whole of eternity. And so that's how precious and amazing this thing is. But because it's offensive, it causes us to take a step back and to say, what is God like? And the question I want to put to you this morning is, who do you think he is? Who do you think he is? Because I believe that God wants to reveal something new of his character to you every single day of your life. Now that sounds like a tall order, doesn't it, to see something new in God. But I believe it's possible. I believe it's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart is to reveal something new about God that's personal to you. And I think all of us come to God with preconceptions about who he is. So it's good for us to take a step back and just to ask ourselves the question, who do we think he really is? So what I want to do is to help us answer that question, or help us consider that question, I'm going to ask four more questions this morning. Okay. The first one that we're going to ask is, what does the Bible say? So whenever we ask a question, the first place we go to is the word, Always. What does the Bible say? Second thing I want to ask you is, what do you say? What do you say? And then thirdly, why does it matter? Why does it matter? And then lastly, how do we approach the cross in light of all that? Does that sound good? good. Okay. We're going to start with a bit of audience participation to start with. So I thought you might like this. Um, So if Alex is around, can you just grab these two flip charts and if you could just set them up sort of where the speaker is just here, that'd be great. So what I've done is I've, I've gone to the Word and found some scriptures that I think maybe shine a light into God's character, the sort of person he is, and I've just tried to put some together. I'm going to read these out, and if I can grab Mike and Will, if you can grab a microphone each, if that's not too many mics in one sentence. Um, And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to read a scripture, and then I'm just going to ask the volunteers, just put your hand up, if you could describe in a word for you how this describes or sums up the way that God is acting or speaking or a character attribute of his. These are not hard, by the way. They're not trick questions. They're quite obvious. So the first one is this. In Matthew 11, you probably won't have time to turn these up, but you can write them down. Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, it says this. This is what Jesus says. To me, it means, put that pack that up there? your troubles in your suitcases yeah. and leave them run free. Can you just say that again, Janet? Sorry. I wasn't listening. I'm sorry. <laughs> Would you repeat it for me? Well, I listened to you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> to me, yes. it's saying, put your troubles in your suitcases, leave them and run free. Okay, thank you. Right. Okay. I'm going to write up here. You may not see this from the back, but carefree, trouble free. Okay, next one. The context of this is the book of Acts. And there were a couple in the early church who sold some land and they raised some money. And they came and they brought it to the apostles. What they did was to say that this is all the money that we had for the land. But actually, secretly, they held some money back. And this is what happened. This is in Acts 5, and I'm going to pick up in verse 5. The couple's name was Ananias and Sapphira. You might remember them. When Ananias heard this, he fell down dead and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of God? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down dead. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. This was a church meeting, folks. (laughs) Who would like to take the next one? Right at the back. We're looking for something that can sum up something that it tells us about God's character. So preferably in a word. You're not listening again. (laughs) Go ahead. God is fair. God. God is? Fair. Fair. Interesting. Anyone else got another description for that scripture? No, the one we've just read. How would someone else describe it? Can't hear you. Microphone over to Mary. Holy. Holy. Okay, next one. Psalm 145 verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Who wants to sum that up with a word? There we go. Pauline never needs a microphone. (laughs) You know that I love you, Pauline, don't you? Okay, next one. 1 Samuel 15, verses 2 to 3 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go... Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. I'm going to couple that with another scripture Joshua 11, verse 20. For it was the Lord Himself who hardened their hearts, that's Israel, to wage war, sorry, it's their enemies, to wage war against Israel so that He might destroy them totally exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses who wants to take that one God is sovereign he does what he pleases him Ooh. okay next one Isaiah 49 verse 13, shout for joy you heavens, rejoice you earth, burst into song you mountains for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Psalm 147 verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Who wants to take that one? Sorry, you only get one go. Come on, let's have some more volunteers. He gives us healing. Healer. Anything else? Loving. Loving. Okay. Next one. Isaiah verse thirteen. Sorry, Isaiah chapter thirteen, verse nine. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Revelation 19, verse 11 and 15. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Who'd like that one? (laughs) Over there, Mike. Just. Just. Any other words? Victor. King. King. Victor. Let's put king and victor together. Victorious king. Okay. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you... Because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of peoples, of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, he swore, to your ancestors, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Oh, right at the back. He's faithful. Oh, okay. Faithful, Okay. Any other words? Set apart. Set apart. Keeps his promises. Promise keeper. Okay. The last couple now. Mark 3, verse 5. This is Jesus. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. John 2, verse 13 to 22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples, disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Any offerings for that one? Mike? Zealous. Zealous. Here we go running out of room here okay I would perhaps add to that maybe violent is that a bit controversial to say that he overturned tables and scattered coins everywhere and shouted at people that doesn't sound like Jesus meek and mild to me he sounds angry and frustrated with man's actions. Okay, last one. Exodus 34, verses 67. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished, He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Who wants to take the last one? There's quite a lot in there, actually. Paul. Righteous. 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 How about forgiving? How about unforgiving? How about judge? How about wrath? We read a scripture about Jesus treading the grapes of the wrath of God. The fury of God's wrath. That's just a A sample of scriptures that show us, thanks guys, that show us that God is anything but simple. Agreed? His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And it's not easy to understand God. We only know of him because he's chosen to reveal himself to us. But he wants to reveal more and more of himself to us. So that brings me to my second question, which is the question that Jesus posed to his disciples Who do you say that I am? And that's my question to you. Who do you say that he is? That's what the word says about him that he's fair, he's compassionate, he's a healer, he's loving, he forgives. Sometimes he doesn't forgive. He's holy, he's just, he's victorious, he's zealous, sometimes he's violent, and he's full of wrath. But what do you say about him? Who do you think he is? Because in this time when we are considering the cross of Christ and it's shining a light into the character of God, sometimes I think we need to stop and reflect and say, I'm being told all these things, but actually what, what, what does God mean to me? Who do I think he is? Because you see, I think each of us approaches God... We're the sort of lens that we use to look at him. And that lens tends to be shaped by things like your upbringing, your experiences of life. Sometimes it's maybe the parents that you had and how you experienced parents, or maybe parents that you didn't have. Sometimes it's shaped by your personality. So sometimes we prefer to see God a certain way because that fits with the way we want to relate to God. Do you see what I'm saying? And each of us come with preconceptions, and sometimes those mean that we choose to see God through a lens. Sometimes that's involuntary. We don't know we're doing it. It's on a subconscious level. And sometimes it's actually very conscious. I prefer to think of God as loving and as faithful and as healer. I don't want to think of God as a holy God full of wrath that gave instructions to the children of Israel to exterminate whole populations. And sometimes those things make us uncomfortable. There are ways in which we don't want to relate to God. But you can't do that with God. You can't cherry-pick the stuff that you want to believe about Him. You can't say, I just want to believe this about Him. I just want to see Him that way. And I just want to see that side of His character. I don't want to see the rest. We can't do that with God. It's all or nothing with him. And he wants to show us all of himself. Sometimes it means that we then choose to relate to a member of the Godhead. I can relate to Jesus. Jesus is my saviour. I love Jesus. I can't really relate to God as my father. I've always struggled with the concept of God as my father. I'm not saying that right now. I'm just saying that you could be feeling that way. Lots of people struggle to see God as their father. Some people don't struggle to see him as their father, but the Sudha father that maybe they grew up with, they are superimposing back on our heavenly father to say maybe he's just a strict God that's waiting for me to put a foot out of line before he comes in with his just judgment and his wrath. So I think it's good to stop and ask ourselves the question. And what I'd like to do just for a minute is I'd just like you all to close your eyes so you're not looking at me or anyone else and just as you're sitting there I want you to consider how do I relate to God primarily how do I see him do I see him as primarily my father do I just see Jesus and he's my friend and saviour do I see him as, as a God that I just have to please but there's no tenderness in the relationship we have do I see him as a as a like a kind uncle that will let me get away with things because he's so gracious and merciful and compassionate lord i just pray right now holy spirit it is your work to reveal all of god to us and lord we just as we're sitting here right now lord we just open our hearts to you holy spirit i pray that you would reveal new things about your character to us. And Lord, for our part, and pray this with me if you can, Lord, I don't want you to hold back any part of who you are, but I want you to open my eyes to see you in your fullness, Lord. I want to know you in your fullness. I pray, Holy Spirit, for all of us that if we have had a narrow lens with which to view you, a narrow way of looking at you, that Lord, now you will start to open that up lord that you will by your spirit show us yourself in new ways and lord for our part we say we are ready to see that and to know you more fully amen amen Amen. Amen. can i encourage you to pray that again to god expect god to open himself up in new ways to you and you have to be open to that say god i want to see you in in different ways i want to relate to you in a broader way than I do right now. Now the question is, my second question, how, sorry, why does it matter? Why does it matter how we view God? Why does it matter if I just view him one way, why I shouldn't view him another way? Now the Bible uses lots of types and pictures to communicate God's character to us. And the Bible does that to use our language so that on our level, we can understand something of God. But just because the Bible describes God in human terms, like God's arm, or even God's mouth, or God's ears, it doesn't mean that he has those things. It's just a picture. And every type and picture that we find in the word has its limits. The danger can be is that we start to superimpose back on God things that are true of us that are not true of him. Now, my good friend Richard would be disappointed if I didn't slip a few long words in this morning. Although, a couple of weeks ago, he slipped in mercurial and axiomatic, I might point out. Touche. I'm going to slip another one. You'll like this one, Richard. It's hexosyllabic, so you'll like it. Anthropomorphism. I'm sure you've heard of the word. Anthropomorphism. It is to attribute to something or someone that isn't human, human characteristics. That can be helpful to a point, but it can be unhelpful when we start to impose back on God a way in which we think he acts or thinks, which is as we think. Let me give you an example. In James, book of James, chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, James talks about a human emotion that is not true of God. He says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So James is differentiating between when you and I get angry about something and when God gets angry about something. And there are lots of other examples where we can look at God and presuppose that he feels a certain way about something. Something that makes God really angry is idolatry. All the way through the word, idolatry. It really gets God's goat. Idolatry in its most obvious form is to form an idol and worship that as God. But in its essence, what idolatry is, is to think of God as something other or less than, usually, he is. When they worshipped the golden calf, they reduced him to a lump of gold shaped like a calf. But we do it all the time in different ways. When we think of God as less than he is. And that's where anthropomorphism trips us up. Because we can think of God as less than he is. When we read of him in the word we may struggle on a human level to understand why God did things a certain way or said things that he did. Because we're thinking if we did those things, that wouldn't be right. But how is it right for him to do those things? And we have to understand that we're not like God. He's different from us. The Bible gives us an unfolding picture of who God is. This is an unfolding revelation. It gives us an unfolding picture of who God is and his purposes. So as you read through the Bible, you find that those purposes become clearer and clearer. And in the Old Testament, much is looking forward to and prefiguring the culmination in Jesus coming and dying for us. And everything finds its fulfillment in Christ. But what we have to be really careful to do is not look at this and to say, the Bible gets better at explaining who God is as it goes along. You see, the Bible is equally revelatory about God. What you read in Genesis, what you read in Leviticus, what you read in Deuteronomy is equally revelatory about God as what you read in the Gospels or the letters or anything else, even though you find those other things perhaps easier to read and understand. And unfortunately, there are some today who are starting to write off what came in the Old Testament, because they don't like what they read. So they say, well, actually, this was just God interacting with a primitive culture, and much of what went into the Old Testament was written by people from that primitive culture, and that isn't really what God's like. But when Jesus comes along in the New Testament, he says, forget all of that stuff. I'm like this, I'm nice. I'm meek and mild and loving and forgiving. Jesus wasn't like that, folks. And that's why some of the scriptures that we read a bit earlier are from the old, and some of them are from the new. In the Old Testament, God is revealed as gracious and compassionate and patient and loving as much as he is in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there is constant talk about a coming judgment from God, which we can escape, Jesus says, by embracing him. The God of the old has not changed and had a personality change when the New Testament was written. He's the same God. And we have to be careful that we don't let people rewrite God's character on the basis that we don't like what we read in the Old Testament. It's important. I think two things can really help us with this. The first thing is to remember that God's nature is unchanging. God says in Malachi 3, he says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Unlike you and me, he never changes. He is always the same. Yeah. That's a difficult concept for us to understand because we are never the same, are we? We're always changing constantly in every moment of our lives. God is always the same. He is just as loving as he has ever been and will always be. Yeah, that's right. And if he wasn't those things, we couldn't depend and rely upon him and feel secure in his love. Yeah. Yeah. Because tomorrow, he may not love us as much. He may fall out with us. And think, I'm not going to love you as much now. I'm not happy with you. Like we would, perhaps. But God isn't like that. And the second thing is, is that God in his nature is unitary. What that means is God is one. God is not lots of different parts made up. I'm not talking about the Godhead now. I'm talking about his nature and his attributes. All of these are not all the different parts that go into making God. God is one. That means what's difficult for us to understand is that God can be compassionate at the same time as being wrathful. God can bring his justice at the same time as being full of love and mercy. Now, that's very difficult for us to understand. It's difficult for me to understand because when I'm angry, I'm angry. And sometimes I can see red. I'm not feeling very loving in that moment. But God isn't like that. He's not swept up by his emotions. When God acts in any given situation, he always acts from within himself. So when we talk about God's attributes, and we've written lots of them up on the board, what we're doing is we're we're describing things that the word tells us about how God acts in any given situation. So when God is fair, we're not saying that God is complying with a standard of fairness that we've all agreed. What we're saying is whatever God does, he's fair that's what fairness is when God is just in a situation what will God do about this situation well God has to be just he does he will always be just he'll never be anything other than just but not to comply with a standard of justice everything he does is just he sets the standard he is the standard the Bible says God is love some Christians look at that and say that's it God is love. That's all I need to know. So everything else comes secondary to that. Well, do you know what? The same apostle told us that God is also light. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. It's because he is light and there's no darknesses in him that he's just and he's holy and cannot abide the presence of sin. You see? So God is loving and just and holy all at the same time. And that's how amazing God is. And God has just started to give us a picture of who he is. We're just still only scratching the surface, folks. We'll be getting to know him for the whole of eternity. But God doesn't want you to wait to eternity to get to know these different aspects of his character. He wants you to start now. He wants to reveal more of himself to you now. The last question I have for you then. How do we approach the cross? Now, this is where I think sometimes we experience the greatest conflict. Each of us, I believe, God has a growing revelation of the cross for you. Now, you might sit there and think, well, that's a bit of a strange thing to say. I know what happened on the cross. Yes, that's right. But you don't really know what happened on the cross. Because you've only just seen a little bit of what happened on the cross. And you say, yeah, but... I'm totally amazed by what happened on the cross. How can there be more? But God says there is more. Because there was more going on than you can see. There was more happening than you have yet perceived. But I want to show you what happened. I want to show you what was going on on the cross. That, for me, is so exciting. To to think that the Spirit of God is going to show me different aspects of what happened That great mystery of the divine, immortal, suffering a death and being raised again. (laughs) Some people are unwilling to accept some aspects of what happened on the cross. Because they're hard to understand. Why was it necessary for the innocent Jesus to die? Why was it necessary for him to die in that way, which was barbaric? And unfortunately, there are so many things about the cross that today are offensive to modern thinking. And one of those is to think that God had to be appeased. In other words, that Jesus had to die to appease the wrath of God. Because some people saying, surely that's beneath God. If you just go with me to Romans 3, we're going to look at a scripture which describes this for us. This is where we're getting to the heart of what happened on the cross, folks. And this is where we're seeing these different seemingly contradictory attributes of God coming together in this single act and moment. So if you go with me to Romans 3, we'll start in... um, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's an awful lot in those verses, isn't there? (laughs) We don't have time. to go into the fullness of those verses. But there's a couple of things I want to pick out. First of all is this word propitiation. Some of your modern versions, like the NLT, um, will maybe say something like atonement or a sacrifice. And a propitiation we found elsewhere in the word translated as mercy seat. It was the place where the blood would be put by the great high priest to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the idea of propitiation is something that is put forward to appease the anger of another person. So at the cross, Jesus put himself forward, let his own blood be spilt, to satisfy the wrath of Almighty God. Now for some people, they don't want to think about that. Because how could God, if he loves his son, how could he punish him for all the sin in the world? How could he allow that to happen? In fact, isn't that whole thing quite barbaric and below God? Isn't God above all of that? If we're asking those questions, we don't understand the problem that God had to deal with. Because sin is so toxic that the only way it can be dealt with is to be killed off completely. And that's why throughout the whole of the word, a sacrifice was always ready, always required to atone for the sins of the people. And what Paul has told us here is that if you look at verse 25, this propitiation, it says, this was to show God's righteousness, to show that God cannot abide sin, otherwise he wouldn't be holy and righteous, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now Paul is talking about what came before Christ. He's talking about the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. And that word, to pass over, it's a word that's only used once in the New Testament. It's a word called pretermission. It's an old legal term that came from Roman law. And it meant to leave someone out of your will. If you wrote a will, and you left money to your family and your friends, but you left one of them out of your will... That's an act of pretermission. You've passed over them. And that's what God did in the Old Testament. What we were due was the penalty for sin before Jesus came. God was able to withhold that judgment because all the judgment that you read of in the Old Testament of people being killed, that's not paying the penalty for sin. Sin requires an eternal punishment, an eternal cutting off, an eternal killing, not just a physical death. But God was able to withhold that judgment because he looked forward and he could see that a price would be paid on the cross. But the price had to be paid and it required nothing less than the costly blood of Jesus, his son. There is nothing, nothing of greater value than the blood of Jesus. And that should tell you how serious sin really is that it took nothing less than the blood of God himself to atone for that sin. We've only just started to see, folks, what happened on the cross. How amazing it was what God did to deal with a problem that we didn't know we had at a time when we were enemies and spitting in his face while he did it. What a gracious God. God was full of grace that day and compassion and he was full of wrath as well and poured it out on his son Jesus. You know, God remains loving at all times. When he brings judgment, he's being loving because he knows the consequences of sin. He knows what sin does to us, how it removes us from him, how it distorts our view of him, how it pushes us towards being independent from him, and everything that exists in all of creation is dependent on him. You take it away from him, and all the power goes, all the lights go out, and death and decay set in. And that's why it needs to be dealt with. What we don't have on the cross is good cop, bad cop. We don't have angry father and loving son. We have God in three persons acting in entirety with the wrath of God fully vented and sin dealt with. And at the same time, the love of God who so loved the world that he was willing to do this for us. It is, isn't it? We see all of God's attributes on the cross. And I think today what I want to leave with you is I just would like us to take a step back and say, how do I think about him? Who do I think he really is? Do I choose just to see him a certain way? Do I just do that automatically without thinking? Are there aspects of him that I just find too difficult to deal with? I don't believe there's any aspect of him that the Holy Spirit can't reveal to you. And you may say, well, why does it matter? It matters because he wants you to know him fully. If you wanted to become my friend, I wouldn't want you to know just some of the things about me. I'd want you to know me. Otherwise, I wouldn't consider you my friend. I want you to know me in my entirety. I would want to hide part of myself from you and God doesn't do that but it's our choice whether we let him reveal new things about himself to us and I want to encourage you as we continue in this series and we continue to focus on the cross I want to stir your faith that God is going to give you revelation after revelation after revelation about what happened and about how it shines a light into his character And for him to say, this is what I'm like. I want you to see my holiness. I want you to see my righteousness. I want you to see my compassion. I want you to see my wrath. But don't worry, because the blood of Jesus has saved you from it. You've nothing to fear in any of these things about me. Amen? Amen. Lord, I just want to, on behalf of us all, Lord, I just want to say just how wonderful you are. What Amazing thing you did on the cross Lord we've only just begun to see who you really are but in our hearts Lord we are hungry to know you Lord we're hungry to know you as a man knows his friend to have a face to face relationship with you Lord. and so Lord we just pray in these coming weeks and months as we spend more time looking upon the cross of Christ that you would open up new things to us Lord Lord, that there'd be nothing that we would shy away from, but you would show us your character in all its glory and fury and compassion and wonderfulness, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.